we come to the preaching of the Word this evening, I want to draw your attention to a number of verses of Scripture, uh, firstly found in Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 1. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and the verse 21, that says there, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Then verse 23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Another cross in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, the verse 10, we have the angel speaking, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David the Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Amen. With the Word of God open before us, let us unite together in prayer and let us seek the Lord as we come to consider His Word and His message to our souls this evening. Let us pray. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank Thee tonight. We can praise Thee. We can read Thy Word. Uh, we thank Thee, Father, that uh, we are here praising Thee. We are here rejoicing in our God and our Savior because of what we have read. Not a mere myth, but an historic event that took place. Something that really happened. Something that was ordained by Thee and planned by Thee and purposed by Thee for the salvation of thy people. And Father, tonight, as we consider these things together, we ask that thou would give us help and give us strength. Father, give us ears that will listen. Give us hearts that will receive thy word. And Father, may Christ be glorified tonight as we consider thy truth. Apply thy word, we ask of thee. Speak the heart. With thy spirit we pray. And Father, may sinners see their need of Christ. May that need be realized tonight. Speak to us, thy children, we pray. We may know what our need is. We may not know what our need is. But, O oh God, we pray thou would speak to us this evening. Glorify Christ, we pray, glorify thy name. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Many years ago, the late Presbyterian pastor in the United States of America, James Montgomery Boyce, told the story of announcing a series of sermons in his church on the subject of the virgin birth. A student came to him afterwards. He was very excited about the series that was coming up, and he said, you know, I've never heard a sermon on the virgin birth. Why do you suppose that is? Boyce thought that, well, perhaps because of unbelief, but he says that it struck him that maybe a reason that some find it, that a reason why it was never preached is that some find it hard to understand how it is relevant to our faith. And we may find it difficult this evening to contemplate that there are those that fail to see the relevance of the virgin birth to the Christian faith. We see it as a foundation stone that we ought not to remove. And if I were to take that foundation stone and shatter it and do all manner of things to it tonight, I'm sure there would be those who would do their best to stop me doing that. It's something that we cannot set aside. It is something that is vital to our faith, the virgin birth and the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It does have a relevance to our faith. And it has relevance to us as individuals. Is the virgin birth a doctrine that you've considered, that you've studied, that you believe, that you treasure and value with all your heart? The Word of God tells us in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed and has profit to us, including the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There's a relevance to it. A relevance to it. The Word of God records for us many amazing births. We can think of Sarah and Isaac, how she laughed at the thought of bearing a child in her own age, but God had other plans. We can think of the wife of Manoah, who was barren, yet the Lord opened her womb. Hannah's womb had been shut by the Lord, but yet the Lord opened it, and she gave birth to Samuel. Elizabeth was barren, yet the Lord moved, and John the Baptist was born. And here in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, we have a wondrous birth in view that far surpasses any other birth in the history of mankind. We see the omnipotent power of God as a virgin, which we can define in the simplest terms as a young unmarried woman, although Joseph is there as her future spouse. But at that time here in our passage, and the time that she found that she was with child, they were unmarried, uh, that uh, marriage union had not taken place, that union Uh, between them had not taken place. And so the virgin birth involves the conceiving of a son to Mary outside her marital union with Joseph. It goes against the natural order of creation. And that's important for us to understand. What we have read is not normal. What we have read will not happen to us. God moved in a supernatural way by the power of his Spirit. The Apostles' Creed outlines the position of the early church on uh, this issue of the virgin birth, and confessions and creeds regarding the virgin birth have been important over the centuries because this truth, this doctrine, has been denied. The Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And so this is what I want us to consider this evening as we reflect upon the Savior's incarnation. Is the virgin birth relevant to us? Is the virgin birth relevant to me? How want you see, first of all, But it is relevant because it is firmly founded in Scripture. It is relevant because it is firmly founded in Scripture. As we praise the Lord for the Incarnation, we sing these words, Though true God of true God, light of light, eternal, the womb of a virgin, he hath not abhorred. And as we sing, what are we actually doing? We are affirming the doctrine of the virgin birth. Not an idea conjured up by a mind of a man, but something that is clearly recorded and set forth in the Word of God. And do you believe it tonight? What we believe must always be founded and agreeable to the Word of God. And the psalmist said, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. The Word of God is settled. It does not change in our views and our beliefs ought to be in line with the Word of God. And that is what is expected of us, conformity to the Word of God. Or the virgin birth may be something wonderful. It might be a miracle. It might be something that we look today and say, well, that never happened. It must be a myth. It must be something that a man came up with in order to attribute greatness and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. It can never happen. But the Word of God says that it did. The Word of God says this took place. The Spirit of God moved in that supernatural way. And as believers, we are to conform to what the Word of God is teaching us. And that is important because we'll see in a few moments that man has said no to conformity to the Word of God regarding this doctrine. But we are to be submissive to Scriptures. The Word is taught, and as it is applied to our hearts, and when our perspective or our belief is challenged for being on Scripture, we should be humble and be corrected by the Word of God. And the virgin birth is founded in Scripture, and therefore our understanding of it, our attitude toward it, should all be in line with what the Word of God says. And we see firstly then that there is a foretelling of the virgin birth, a foretelling of the virgin birth. In Genesis chapter 3, the Lord gives the proto-evangel, the first gospel message. And he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, 
the serpent and the woman between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That may mean very little to us, but looking at redemptive history and looking at what just happened in the Garden of Eden regarding the fall, what is God saying? There is enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between the devil. There'll be this bruising. here there is this wonderful promise that as we look at it in light of scripture we see the promise of a Messiah, one who will come and bruise the head of the serpent. The virgin birth is not specifically referred to here, but it refers to one who would be the seed, the offspring of a woman. And as the revelation of God proceeded over the years, further revelation was given concerning the birth of Christ. In Isaiah 7 verse 14, we read these words, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. That verse simply explains what will take place. The virgin birth of Christ was realized through the supernatural work of God in the life of Mary. She was a godly woman. She was sensitive. She was submissive to the will of God. That is a characteristic of godliness. Something we often forget nowadays, sensitivity and submission to the will of God. She wasn't submissive to her own ideas. She is submissive to God's plan. And that is something we need the Lord to continually teach us. A sensitivity toward Him. Toward His will. Submission toward Him. Not a manipulation of circumstances and people to do what we ourselves want to do. But to submit humbly to what God would have for us. And God had this plan for the life of His servant that she would bear the Messiah who would be the saviour of the world. And in God's sovereign plan, as we see in the Old Testament, there are other verses we can consider, but God planned what would take place. He did not hope this would take place. We can often hope things will take place. Maybe uh, this week you're planning things and planning seeing family. You hope these things will happen. But you can't say for certain that they will. God did not simply hope these things would come to pass and work out. God knew. God ordained it. God was in control. And when we consider God being in control of these events that led up to the incarnation of His Son, how comforting that is when we look at ourselves and the times that we face and the difficulties and the trials. We have one who, despite what we are going through, despite our pain, is in control. He was in control of history and in control of the nation and in control of that line of David leading up to the virgin birth, leading up to the one who would die to redeem us. He was in control, but how easy we can doubt that God is in control. How easy can we think that God must have lost the reins somewhere and we doubt him. But yet, dear believer, think of the scriptures, think of this, think of what God has done. He is the one who is in control. There's a great purpose to the incarnation, that Christ would be born in order to go to the cross to deal with the greatest problem mankind would ever have, sin. And God accomplished that through his power. Oh, we should not doubt his power. We should not doubt his care and his comfort and his help toward us. When we think of God's redemptive plan, Christ coming into the world to save sinners, that was the plan of God. Many will say that God had another plan for Christ to reign physically over his people. And when the Jews rejected him, well, plan B was dying upon the cross. There was no plan B. The plan of God was the cross at Calvary. It was the death of his only begotten son. And it shows us again, God was in control. His promises come to pass. And dear believer, 
to unsaved person this evening, when we think of the relevance of the virgin birth to us, it is relevant because Scripture says so. Scripture sets it forth. Scripture is relevant to us. But notice here as well, there was a fulfillment. A fulfillment. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, the verse 18, we see the uh, fulfillment of uh, this a promise in Scripture. It tells us in the verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. And uh, moving down, uh, verse 25, we read that Joseph knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Again, uh, when we think of Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, the angel said, Fear not merely, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. This young woman was used by God. The Roman Catholic system of religion has given her a position that is not fitting, not befitting any mere human. She was blessed abundantly by the Lord, but yet she was a humble servant. A humble servant. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, we read uh, that she said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, the Lord's servant, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. That word handmaid in the original Greek is the feminine uh, doulos, which is the Greek word for slave. She was a slave, a servant of the Lord. She was submissive to the Lord. And how marvelous that is when we think of it. Without giving a full explanation of her betrothal to Joseph, I think it's enough to say that during this period of engagement, it's a stronger word than our engagement today, a stronger circumstance, if we were to use that modern term, however, to find out that your future wife was expecting a child was a very certain sign of immorality on her part. It would become public knowledge, yet the circumstances would not have been easily believed. We would have led to public reproach. Would she have been the talk of the town regarding what was happening? But yet, did she not know she was in the center of God's will, trusting him, submitting him, submitting to him, being comforted? And dear believer, when we are reproached, when we face the mockery of others, are we not comforted that we know we are in the center of God's will, like Mary? That the problem is not us, because God has assured us of that, that we're looking to him, that we're looking to him. The angel spoke to Joseph in a dream. Matthew chapter 1 assured him this was all of God. How marvelous that is. He thought upon these things. He was patient. He was kind. And while he thought on these things, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not, fear not. And explained to him the circumstances of what was taking place. He too was submissive. In Luke chapter 1, we find Mary praising the Lord. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. God was praised. Her focus was upon the Lord and not herself. And as Protestants, as those who stand opposed to the doctrines of Catholicism, we have a tendency to set aside Mary's godly example because she's been greatly uplifted by the Roman Catholic system. But yet God was given the praise. God was honored. Her example should be followed by us all. She should not be uplifted as Rome uplifts her, but yet as one in the Bible who loved the Lord and served the Lord humbly. What an example. What an example. And she was used by the Lord to fulfill his promise. To fulfill his promise. What a mystery the, the virgin birth is. But yet we believe it to be true. We accept it by faith. 
The Shorter Catechism says that Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being convinced by the power, conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance and born of her yet without sin. What a mystery it is, but dear believer, if we accept Scripture to be the Word of God, we must therefore believe and accept and treasure the virgin birth by which Christ entered into this world and was born yet without sin. Yet without sin. I want you to see secondly here that the virgin birth is relevant despite its sinful rejection by society. It is relevant despite its sinful rejection by society. thinking this evening my mouth is so dry that either it's something I've ate or uh, someone has sucked all the moisture out of the air around the pulpit. Uh, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep going. It is relevant despite its sinful rejection uh, by society. And as we've mentioned already, secular society rejects the virgin birth of Christ. We can see that around us. Today we can see that. Tomorrow we can see that. But society does not dictate the theology of the church of Jesus Christ. If the virgin birth is rejected and found to be false and lies, therefore the authority of Scripture is merely a myth dreamt up by man. If the virgin birth it does not exist, then man's spiritual depravity must be a figment of his own imagination. A rejection of the virgin birth turns us from God. It turns us from Christ. It turns us from the gospel. It turns us from the word of God. And we see regarding this sinful rejection, the myths of Satan. The myths of Satan. In the realm of fantasy and myth, Satan has devised many legends to take away from the reality of the virgin birth. I don't want to spend too much time upon this, but basically, if you were to study Greek mythology, there is account after account after account of various gods and heroes being born, not by ordinary means against the natural order. We can see it in fantasy. We can see it in science fiction. And what do these things do? These myths, these stories, they take away, they chip away at the miracle of Christ's birth. Therefore, it's something common. It's something that's merely a story or a myth, something that cannot actually have taken place. Why is that? Because Satan does not want this world believing in the virgin birth of the Son of God. Because it is vital to our salvation, as we'll see in a moment. But notice here as well the mockery of men. The mockery of men. The virgin birth goes against science. Science mocks such a thing. But man cannot just explain this away. The virgin birth is slandered. It's mocked. But yet we find within the church of Christ, the so-called church of Christ, there are those that set aside the virgin birth as well. Since the commencement of the 20th century, many liberals have attacked this doctrine. John MacArthur said that a popular religious personality said in an interview many years ago that he could not in print or in public deny the virgin birth of Christ. But at the same time, he neither could preach it or teach it. When I have something I can't comprehend, he said, I just don't deal with it. And MacArthur said, to ignore the virgin birth is to ignore the deity of Christ. To ignore his deity is tantamount to denying it. A real incarnation, he said, demands a real virgin birth. Going into Irish Presbyterianism at the commencement of last century, it was a central issue around uh, the 1920s. Uh, professor uh, Davy, who I think I've mentioned before, uh, was a professor in the Presbyterian Church of Ireland, and in a particular book, Presbyterianism on Trial, it is about uh, the courts of the church trying this particular minister and finding him not guilty of heresy, yet his writings testify to the uh, other side. But there's a book <coughs> that was on seal. At that time, it was mentioned uh, in this account. It was by a man called the Reverend McNeil. 
And he critiques the approach of the Sunday school teacher. It was made available to Sunday school teachers. And he looked at the approach of certain biblical stories to children, downgrading the divine work in such accounts. And his emphasis was that many of those accounts in Scripture are mere stories. He said, and I quote, There are certain portions of the gospel where difficulties confront us which we cannot solve. The story of the wise man and the star is probably only a story. The question of the virgin birth and the physical resurrection, you must study for yourselves and form your own conclusions as I am trying to form mine. This was not a man in his first year of college. This was not a man who had spent... <coughs> A few years in the ministry. This was a man who had experience coming to 20 years. And at that time, he did not know where he stood on many of the basic fundamental truths of the gospel of Christ that he had been called and ordained to preach. He went on to say, The virgin birth has little to do with the message that we have to teach. And I find myself interpreting it as poetry rather than history. How sad that is. The man who wrote <coughs> that account claimed that no commission or minister ever uttered a word publicly against that man, apart from an Anglican pastor who published a reply. Unbelief is the problem, not only outside the church, but within those that claim to be part of the church of Christ. To not believe the virgin birth is to reject the sovereign power of God, to say that God is incapable of such an act, to say that our salvation is not truly dependent upon a pure and holy Savior. But what did the angel tell Mary? For with God nothing is impossible. In other words, God is able to do what he says he will do. Dear believer, tonight we are to defend the doctrine of Christ against error. That should matter to us. The truth of God. What God says in his word and the great implication of those things upon our souls should matter to us. It is vital to us. Do we care if a man says the virgin birth is a myth? Do we care if he says it is a lie? Do we care if secular authors or whoever it may be blaspheme the name and person and work of Christ in all that they do? Turning the pure Son of God into someone and something that he is not or, or trying to. If they're not of Christ. Oh, how this world rejects this vital doctrine and dear believer unsaved person whoever you are this evening the birth of Christ this virgin birth the incarnation is relevant to you despite what this world says and it is relevant thirdly because it is absolutely fundamental to our salvation we cannot be saved without what happened here in Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, being absolutely true. It was God's way, it was God's plan. Verse 21 tells us the great purpose of Christ uh, coming into this world. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That is the purpose. That is why Christ came. He came to redeem. He came to save. He came to deliver. He came to the cross of Calvary. And there he died and shed his blood to redeem sinners. He died for those who had rejected him. And those who hated him. That they might be called the sons of God. The pure spotless Lamb of God. Many in this world, they look... At the incarnation, they'll see a Christ who is just a child. Just a child. You know what probably all of us say when we see a newborn baby? The word cute is used. Is that not what the world's view of Christ often is? Especially when we see all that happens at this time of year. 
the cute baby lying in the stable. But yet that is not who Christ is. He is the King. He is the Lord. He is the Creator. He is the one who is the judge of this world. He is the one who is its Savior. He is not merely a child. The account of Christ here in Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, the account of Christ commences in Scripture long before Matthew, long before Luke, because Christ existed before then. There in the Old Testament Scriptures, after Matthew and Luke, those opening chapters, Christ existed, Christ lived, Christ died. Revelation, it tells us what Christ will continue to do in days of the future. But yet man is often focused and content and satisfied and wants to just leave Christ in the manger. But yet, he is the judge, he is the savior. What we have here is absolutely fundamental to our salvation because he is our savior. The virgin birth proclaims the divinity of Christ. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, we read those words, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. Christ was our great representative. He was God, but he was man. He was God and had that purity and that sinlessness, but he was man in that he uh, took upon us himself uh, our nature. He took upon himself there at the cross. He paid the debt for our sin. He was made sin for us, as the scriptures say. The Catechism tells us that he became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures in one person forever. How is that? How can one person be God and man? Yet in the mystery and where and decree of God, we find that is so. Many will attack this truth today, but yet the divinity of Christ is fundamental to our salvation. There's much we could go on to say about that, but let us just think upon it. The virgin birth proclaims that Christ is God. It proclaims that Christ is God. But secondly, we find that it protects the impeccability of Christ. The impeccability of Christ. What is impeccability? Well, Christ was pure. He was sinless. He did not sin. Impeccability takes that a step further. Christ could not have sinned. It is not just that he did not sin, but he was incapable of sinning, incapable of doing wrong, incapable of going against his own law. He was not dying for his own sin because he was perfect. He was unable to sin. And there at the virgin birth, in the plan of God, there was a separation from our original sin. You see, each one of us born by ordinary generation. We're sinners because of Adam. We have his original nature. We have that original sin. Why do children sin? Why do they rebel? Why do they do things that they're not supposed to do? Well, is it not because mommy and daddy sat down and when they were young went through all the things that are bad and wicked and evil and taught them? No, it's in them. Because of Adam's sin, because of the fallen nature of man, men are born in sin, as the Scriptures say. We don't need to be taught how to sin. We sin from our earliest days. But yet... Christ was born not by ordinary generation. He had a full divinity. He also had a full humanity. He needed the constant care and attention of his mother. When we think of that uh, famous uh, hymn, Away in a Manger, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I've often thought upon that. How great it would be to have a baby that didn't cry. 
Maybe there's a general reference to an occasion where Christ woke but didn't cry in the imagination of the writer. But many have taken that interpretation that Christ did not cry nor could he have cried. But crying is not sinful. It can be sinful. It may not be sinful. We have the smallest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. That reminds us of his humanity. That reminds us uh, that he did cry, he did weep. And as part of his full humanity, he did so. But often crying comes from a sinful heart. I used to work at Tesco in the supermarket, and they put sweets, candy by the checkouts for the children to come, and the children see the candy, they want the candy, the parents say no, and, well, there's a very clear health and safety issue there, why, why the employees need to be given uh, safety protection for their ears, uh, because the crying would bring the place down. Maybe they don't do that in Canada, but in uh, the United Kingdom, uh, that happens all the time. But all crying is not sinful crying. It's not crying constantly out of a sinful and greedy heart. The hungry baby can't say, I'm hungry, can I have some food, please? The hungry baby cries. The child who is in pain, what do they do? They react in the only way that they can. They cry. We ourselves, we cry for many reasons. Crying is part of our humanity. And Christ did not have a part of our humanity. Christ had all of our humanity. This certainly would have included the capacity to cry, but without sin. Without sin. He's the perfect, sinless, pure Lamb of God. And the virgin birth is important because it teaches us, yes, there's a great mystery, but it teaches us that Christ was free from the sin of man. Many will deny original sin today, the state and guilt of Adam's sin being passed down upon us. But yet it is true. Dear unbeliever tonight, that sin has been passed down to you. You can add your own transgressions to it. And in the sight of God, you are a sinner. And the virgin birth is relevant to you because it tells of one who was perfect, one who was holy, one who came into this world for the purpose of saving his people from their sins. The birth of Christ is relevant to you. The death of Christ is relevant to you because it is the only way in which you can be saved. The Word of God tells us, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Oh, the perfect Son of God who knew no sin died for us. But thirdly here, the virgin birth enables our salvation. It's absolutely fundamental to it. He shall save his people from their sins. The virgin birth of Christ, what we read here in Matthew 1, Luke chapter 2, it's fundamental to salvation. Dear unbeliever tonight, to know Christ as Savior, to know him as your Lord and your Master, to know him as your Redeemer, you must look back to Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 2 and how this young child was born, sinless and pure, to be the Savior of sinners. And the old Puritan said, The Son of God became the Son of Man, that we, the sons of men, might become the sons of God. And all this he did to save the nations. John Calvin said that becoming man with us, he hath made us sons of God. By taking on our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. Receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. The incarnation highlights your great need of trusting Christ as your Savior. Why did there have to be an incarnation? As our brother said this morning, because of our sin. Because of the sin of man, Christ came and was born of a virgin. Because of man's sin. Nothing that we can do, nothing that we can conjure up within our lives, no religious activity that we can accomplish can change that. But Christ, 
the Christ of the Incarnation, the Christ of the Gospel, conceive. William Perkins said, He came near unto us by taking our nature upon him, that we again, whatsoever we are, might come near unto him. Oh, Christ is the only Savior, the only Redeemer. Oh, that you would turn to him, you would see the relevance of his birth, the relevance of the virgin birth, and in that, the great reason why you must flee to Christ and believe in him and repent of sin in order to be saved. Fourthly, I want you to see, and finally as we close, that the virgin birth is relevant because it is a message that we must share with the world. It's a relevant message because the world needs to hear this message. If you turn back to Luke chapter 2, when we have the account with the shepherds here, the account of the shepherds, and they were in the fields around Bethlehem, maybe quietly watching over their flock by night. Not much was going on. It was quiet. It was still. And then the angel of the Lord came upon them. The glory of the Lord shone round about them. They were sore afraid. Oh, the great scene that took place. What was going on? What had happened? And the angel came, and the angel spoke, and the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The message of the gospel being found right there, it's not a message to fear. It's not a message uh, that uh, we need to fear in the sense uh, there is much fear if we reject that message. But it's a message of peace. It's a message of great and good tidings. It's a message of Christ. What a wonderful scene. The very same message that they brought is the message, dear believer, that we must live out, that we must bring through our words and through our example, the message of a Savior who is born, a message, as the angel says here, to all people, to all people. Oh, the great declaration that took place, it was a declaration of joy. Sin brings darkness and despair, but Christ and his salvation brings joy. Oh, the great joy when we think of God's love, when we think of what God has done for us. Oh, dear believer, magnify God, magnify his love. We see his love here in sending his only begotten son. He sent him into this world as a sacrifice for sinners. But the great joy that the angel is speaking about is to all people, to all the earth. Most certainly to us as God's people, there must be joy. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. And how comforting that is. Very often we're not filled with joy. We're downcast. We're discouraged. Job was downcast and discouraged because of his circumstances, or he should have been. But what did he do in Job chapter 19? He thought upon his Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer liveth. And dear child of God, when we think upon Christ, when we think of the joy that Christ brings, when we think of what Christ has done for us, and we're faced with the difficulties in life, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Oh, there may be no comfort in this world. There may be no comfort with friends and family, but there's a comfort with Christ. I know that my Redeemer liveth. I know that he was born. I know that he died for me. I know that he rose again for me. I know that he cares for me. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Oh, what a joy it is when we think of our glorious Savior. The thought of Christ should gladden our hearts. The thought of Christ should lift us up. And when we consider what we have here, the Son of God, the Savior, being born. Oh, the joy. But we see also it's a declaration of God's power of God's power. And not only the appearance of the angel and the glory of the Lord, but that which the angel was saying shows forth the power of God. The power of God. Because the Lord had kept his promise, the Messiah, the Savior, Christ the Lord had come. 
the great supernatural miracle of the incarnation had taken place. Our God is not a dead God. He's a living God. He has the power to deliver, to deliver from sin. May we never give up praying for those who are lost. May we never give up at praying for God to help us and strengthen us and enable us to live for him and serve him. For he is a God of power. A God of power. And as we, as we go in this world sharing the message of the virgin birth, the message of Christ, the message of the incarnation, the message of the gospel, let us remind ourselves that God is our help. That the God who made it all possible is with us. Let us remember as well that the power of God is seen in our lives. Those who've been changed, those who've been redeemed, those who once walked with this world, but Christ has made them new. All what a living example of the power of Christ and what Christ has done. With a great change. There's a declaration of peace as well. Notice what uh, these verses say. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. There is peace. Oh, how this world wants peace. How this world desires peace. Or at least some people in this world want peace. And I think the rest uh, want war. Uh, but yet, uh, for us, I believe, we want peace. We don't want war. We don't want conflict. We want peace. Many want peace out of a selfish desire to have a full and happy life. Uh, but when we think of uh, the peace that this world offers, it's not a lasting peace. The angel is crying out here and declaring and saying, On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And ultimately that peace is truly found in Christ. It's not found in this world, it's found in the Savior. The one who would bring peace between God and man had come. The one who would reconcile the sinner to his God had come. Peace. And the incarnation makes that peace possible. Do you know peace with God? Do you know peace with the Savior? Do you know peace because Christ has dealt with your sin? Dear believer, do you know peace? How often we can think upon our sin, how often we can doubt that Christ has truly redeemed us. But you can have peace. Resting in the promise of God. Resting in the gospel of God. Resting in what Christ has done. Yes, the devil will make you doubt and fear and wonder if you were ever saved. Cling to the promises of God. Cling to what God has done. There is peace. You can experience that blessed peace with God because of Christ. Oh, what a message we have to deliver to this world, a message of peace. Peace between God and men. But then finally notice there's a declaration here for God's glory. If we go and tell the world of Christ and his gospel and his incarnation, what it is the purpose here? Yes, that souls will be saved, but ultimately, what is that great purpose? That God will be glorified. God will be glorified. We see that in the uh, verse number 14, glory to God in the highest. Christ coming, Christ being born, Christ dying, Christ being risen from the dead, Christ coming again. It glorifies our God. It glorifies the Savior. Dear believer, Glorify Christ. Glorify the Lord for what he has done for you. As you seek to serve the Lord and to tell others of Christ, do it to God's glory, not your own glory. Do it to the glory of God. Put Christ first in all things. Put Christ first. As we close, let me end by saying this. The virgin birth of Christ calls us as his people to submit ourselves and our hearts to the Word of God, no matter how extraordinary or difficult that may be. We're to have our minds and our hearts held captive by the Word of God. Despite all the issues that would arise from the public speculation of their circumstances, 
Joseph and Mary believed God. They trusted God's word. And in the same way, let us believe our God. Let us trust his word. Let us rest in his power. Let us rest in his faithfulness. For if we cannot believe in the virgin birth, how can we trust him to give us eternal life through Christ? How can we trust him to raise us from the dead? As Christ was raised, we could say, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul compares them and expands them. The resurrection of Christ and our resurrection. If we cannot believe the virgin birth, how can we trust the Lord to take us home to be with him forevermore? May we believe it. May we trust in it. May we rejoice in it. May we, like the angels, spread it abroad. Christ is born. Christ is the Savior. And may we all rest upon salvation, for salvation upon the God of salvation. May the Lord bless his word tonight for his name's sake. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy truth. We thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for the virgin birth. And oh, the great depth that there is when we consider these things. Oh, the great mystery of what thou didst do through thy spirit. Oh, Father, we pray that we would not be like those who would take this great truth, this doctrine, and rip it apart and set it aside. When we look at history, and when we look at those that we've mentioned who have denied the virgin birth, oh, how we can think today of those who remember these people, but yet their theology, their views, on the church are filled with liberalism, filled with immorality. Father, may we hold true to the doctrine of thy word, to the doctrine of the virgin birth. May we rejoice that Christ is born. May we rejoice that he is the Savior. And, O oh God, we pray that if there be those here who know not Christ, that thou would be pleased to draw them unto the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. Father, we pray that I would be pleased to part us with thy blessing. And may the love of God our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the sweet communion of God the Holy Spirit rest, remain and abide with us, both now and forevermore. Amen.